From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. Last summer, I rented the movie Blind Date on demand. I don't know if that's still called renting. Um, It's a Bruce Willis, Kim Basinger rom-com from the 80s, and I have no idea why I picked it. Uh, I guess I remember really liking it as a kid, and I thought I'd see if it held up. And it really did. It's funny, and it's charming, and it's quirky with a great ending. And it was directed by Blake Edwards, who also directed Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I just realized must be why I was watching it, um, because I'm writing a limited series right now about the making of Breakfast at Tiffany's. Anyway, I uh, looked at who wrote Blind Date afterwards, and it was this guy Dale Launer. So I found his email, and I wrote him a note about how much I liked it, and he wrote back to me six months and one week later. Seriously. I wrote him on July 4th. He wrote me back on December 14th. His response. Just found this. Unfortunately, I'm not a fan of Blind Date and tried to get my name taken off the project. If you're still interested in talking, let me know. Needless to say, I was definitely still interested. Dale also wrote some of the best comedies of the 80s. You know, a bunch of them are always on those lists that come out about the funniest movies of all time. He wrote Ruthless People with Danny DeVito and Bette Midler, which I also loved as a kid. He wrote Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Michael Caine and Steve Martin, a really fun, stylish con man comedy. And what's gotta be Dale's magnum opus, he wrote My Cousin Vinny with Joe Pesci and Marissa Tomei. I wore out my VHS copy of My Cousin Vinny when I was younger. Um, My favorite fact about it, by the way, literally ask any lawyer what movie is most accurate about courtroom law, what they studied in law school about courtroom law, and they'll say, My Cousin Vinny. This is not a joke. Seriously, ask any lawyer you know. Dale's movies are all incredibly funny, but never lowest common denominator, which a lot of 80s studio movies were. Dale's movies are not afraid of being smart. And they're actually about something. A lot of what Dale seems to be doing with his work is poking fun at the class system. Whether it's Steve Martin as a con man pretending to be a rich sophisticate to mingle in high society uh, in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, or, you know, Judge Reinhold and Helen Slater kidnapping a wealthy woman for ransom in Ruthless People. And, of course, my cousin Vinny focuses on an outsider lawyer from a third-rate law school who never passed the bar in the state that he's working in, but he triumphs anyway. Dale champions the underdog against whatever the hell the ruling system is. So I am excited to talk to him about all of this. Ladies and gentlemen, Dale Launer. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft for their help getting the word out about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and much more. actually have a website, dalehonor.com. Oh, okay. And on the site, there is a somewhat unedited, or somebody somewhat unedited, um, Cure for Writer's Block. Ooh. Um, that you wrote. And what, and, yeah, and what uh, Writer's Block was, is, I believe, is like a form of depression and anxiety. Yeah. And that you have the ideas, but for some reason, your inner critic is stopping it. Right. That's what Writer's Block is, is that you... 
you're sitting looking at a blank page or you're looking at a scene, you don't like it, and right. you're just stopping yourself. So, yeah, there's a great... I sort of get into what you have to do and the, the frame of mind, the, the head you have to get into to, to, to move on. Right. Um, there's a great Norman Mailer quote where he says, um, writer's block is just a failure of ego. Um, yeah. which makes a lot of sense to me. It's like, of course you can write. You're just, you're stopped because you don't think what you have to say is worthy of being read by anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I used to say that, uh, like a writer has two sides to them, but one, the creative side is like the child that's finger painting and just has fun. Right. And then the other side is the critic, the adult. Right. And usually your adult, it gets stronger before your child's eye gets stronger as, as a beginning screenwriter and a beginning screenwriter. I mean, I've seen it all the time with you know kids in their early twenties and they're very critical, very, very critical of movies. God forbid you have those at a preview at a test screening. And one of those, one of those guys sits up front and they're very, very opinionated. Um, so that that's part of what, I think part part of the process or part of the evolution of a writer. Right. Uh, at least it was for me is my critic was like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> it was strong. It was powerful. You know, it could take down any idea I had. And I had to learn, you know, to tell that side of me to back off and then get more and more creative. You know, and then allow yourself to cut loose. But what you were saying, like in the shower, yeah, the water, the warmth, it calms you. Right. Um, I once had, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. A no, bit, no, I'm interested. I have a, a, a friend. I probably, sh- I can't say his name. It probably would not be right. <laughs> it's all but we were at a dinner party and, and he's a writer. He's a well-known writer. I'm sure you'd know the name. And, and we started a conversation about, um, um, let me say about writing on either various drugs or alcohol, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and why each one is problematic. And uh, he's sober now, so he doesn't write drunk or stoned or anything like that. And, um, and then we, um, uh, and then I said something, I said, you know, but one thing I actually love, if uh, I have a hard time sleeping and I take an Ambien mm-hmm. for about 20 minutes yes. before I just pass out. I'm yeah. familiar with this feeling. Yeah, it gets you high. Yeah, and he got all excited. He almost jumped to his feet. Says, "Yes, yes, it's fantastic." (laughs) Yeah, just just for twenty minutes, you're just you know you're you're a sloppy typer, but but uh, um, yeah, uh, it it gets rid of all inhibitions. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, You got to be careful not to go on email though, because you're not going to remember anything the next day. <laughs> um, so you know, I was I was thinking a little bit about um, you know your movies and looking for sort of common denominators, and one seems to be that you often have a hero who is doing something, uh, you know, sort of maybe illegal, maybe immoral, doing whatever it takes in order to have a better life or more money or to win justice. And I guess I'm wondering if that's a conscious thing—that's sort of the championing of the outsider underdog, or. Is that sort of not conscious if that's just the kind of person you are? No, it's, no, it's, not, it's not particularly conscious. Um, uh, I do remember in Ruthless People, I used to be a stereo salesman. And I would see other salesmen on the floor, um, some who were very good, very professional salesmen, 
uh, and they would sell people what they want. Uh, I was a salesman that had to educate people and sell them what they should get. Right. You know, I would try to get them to buy better equipment. Right. right. Um, and you don't always make the most money that way, but I felt like I was being honest and, you know, doing God's work in the stereo business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and still making money. And, uh, and then there was other people who were, you know, like I remember one guy, he came onto the floor, he knew nothing about the equipment, nothing, could care less, and charming and bright, and I believe a psychopath, <laughs> and he was a great salesman, right? Right. He had no conscience at all. He could just say whatever he wanted to say. And uh, it was easy, easy for him. So I noticed there was all these people making uh, different decisions. And, you know, and I had made a decision as a salesman, you know, to um, take time with people. And, um, you know, and rather than sell them what they want, sell them uh, what would be, uh, you know, educate them. Right. And tell them what, why this is a particularly good item. And then, and then sell them on that. So the, the, that was that kind of person. That there are people in the stereo business, the salesmen at the time, who were very, very knowledgeable. There was one guy who was very knowledgeable, but he wasn't a good salesman, and he was almost always in danger of getting fired because he couldn't sell. And I thought that was an interesting character, and that's kind of what the, the character of Ken is in Ruthless People. And there was a point where... You know, he's, you know, he, he sits and he tries to explain to somebody something about the size of a woofer, you know, and that is the size of the woofer is not important. What you do with it, they count. And that is true. Uh, and then later he gets pissed off and he essentially turns his morals off. Right. And somebody comes in and he's selling them on everything. Right. You know, that sort of decision, that kind of feeling where you think that the world is not that fair. I think I have some of that in me, mm-hmm. but I also do believe people who are talented can get ahead. Unfortunately, the people who are driven are definitely will get ahead. That's right. much more important than talent. Right. And so, right. So the Judge Reinhold character, you know, uh, kidnaps someone. Um, Joe Pesci's character, my cousin Vinny, you know, breaks the rules about practicing law where he hasn't passed the bar. Um, over and over again, we see this. So no, 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 no. He he has passed the bar. What, what wasn't it that he hadn't passed the bar in that state, or what was he keeping hidden from the judge? Um, uh, he passed the bar in New York. It took him six tries. Right. Um, but to be approved to um, practice law uh, in in a courtroom, right, you right. have to be approved by the judge. Right. So he lies to the judge. Right. Uh, in that sense, and uh, well, the movie is is used often in law schools. I know it's an amazing thing. Yeah, and then the, but they do mention that you know he he does an unethical thing okay. that he lies about his experience, right? Know? But he does it for the the sake of justice. He knows he's the guy that's going to get uh, Ralph Macchio and his partner off. Yeah, I think I, he is confident that he is confident. I think he knows he's smart. Mm-hmm. And what I would like to do in a prequel, yeah, and because I may adapt it to the stage, and the first act, oh, cool, will be the prequel. How close is the stage play from becoming a reality? Uh, I don't know. Okay. That's a good question. <laughs> totally fair. I keep getting distracted by other things. Right. Have you written plays before? Have you ever tried plays? Um, I uh, wrote the sequel to My Cousin Vinny, 
uh, and I adapted that to the stage. Uh, I did a casting last year. I hired a casting director because I've done readings before, but if you do a reading and you don't cast the actors right, there's really no point in doing a reading. It's just a miserable experience. Right. Um, Because it just doesn't sound right. So I cast it. uh, I did a reading, a semi-staged reading, and uh, I invited some friends, and uh, it turned out uh, exceptionally well. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, do you when do you always um, assemble friends or actor friends when to do a reading of screenplays as you finish them? No, okay. I don't. Just because this was going to be a stage play, it's a separate beast. Yeah, you know, I can do it. I, I often will do pitches to people, and I'll act out all the scenes so I know how they sound. Right. So and, and if I act out a scene. You know, I get a response from people in the room. It could be like one person. Uh, it could be a few people. Right. And I, I can see how it plays. And I enjoy doing that as part of the creative process now. Right. Something I learned way back early in my career, that if I pitch a story, um, you can, you know, you can see where the laughs come. Right. And you, 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 you know, you perform it. It's fun to do. And it's fun to get the feedback. And you end up coming up with new material. Right. And sometimes you embellish it as you go along. And sometimes people have a response. You know, while they're laughing, they may throw something out and you realize, oh, yeah, that's that's a good idea. Right. It's like, it sounds like a, com- a stand-up comic, you know, working on his material, working on his set at a bunch of different clubs before he does exactly. his Netflix special. Yeah. 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 You see it. Something comes out in the performance. Right. You, you mentioned before that my cousin Vinny has taught at law schools. Every lawyer, literally every lawyer I've ever asked the question to, and once I found this out, I asked every lawyer I knew, uh, what movie is most accurate about courtroom law? The answer always is my cousin Vinny. Yeah. So do you have a law background? Why is it so accurate? Uh, It is accurate because when I sat down to write it, I met with a friend of mine, Doug Knoll, who was a lawyer and a litigator, uh, although a civil litigator. And so we would meet for lunch, and uh, I'd ask him questions, and he would give me, uh, you know, he would, he would, he would often say things like, "Yeah, but it's a movie; you don't have to." And I said, "No, no, 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 no! Don't tell me that. Don't, don't excuse it because it's a movie, and I'm going to do something that's not realistic. What would really happen?" So when he tells me what would really happen, that becomes fodder for the story. And then when I asked him, I said, where do you learn this stuff? Is there a class in law school? He goes, no. No? Yeah. They don't teach you court procedure in law school? No. Well, how do you learn it? He says, you either go to court and watch and learn there, or the firm that hires you teaches you. Now, that goes right into the script, right? So we explain that. And Lisa wants to know why he's fucking up, right. you know, why he doesn't know this stuff. And he explains it to her. So he says it's going to be a little awkward, right? Well, that's the whole movie. Right. Is, is he doesn't know. He's It's like trial and error here. And he doesn't know what he's doing. And, and as a result, I thought it would be interesting uh, because of all the courtroom movies I've seen, I never quite understood what they were saying. How do you plead? How do you plead? Does that mean, you know, if they give you a multiple choice question, how do you plead guilty or not guilty or no low contender? Um, I understand that, okay? Right. But when he said, how do you plea? I'm not sure what that meant, right? And 
And uh, if I wasn't sure, then Vinny's not sure. So Vinny asked, he doesn't understand the question. Now we know when you, because you've seen my cousin Vinny, you now understand what that means. So in the sequel, opens up in the Old Bailey in London. And Vinny shows up in a barrister's robe and wig. <laughs> and uh, the defendant is brought out, and it's Mona Lisa Vito, right? <laughs> still his fiance. They still have not gotten married. The judge comes out, announces this is a committal proceeding. They will hear evidence and charges, and he'll make a determination of whether it's strong enough to go to a formal trial. And now, when I went there, when I wrote the sequel originally, I kept asking people, I, you know, I've got to get Vinny in there to defend her. And they said, there's no way you can do that. Absolutely no way you can do it. They, they do not allow it. Then somebody says, well, there's a McKenzie rule. And you can allow, allows you to use a layman as counsel. And so I used that. I, I managed to work that into the story. That's great. Uh, except then I did some more research about a year and a half ago, and I actually met with high court judges in the Old Bailey. And uh, they said, well, but a McKenzie, uh, the, your, your McKenzie friend, which is the term, uh, they can counsel you, but they cannot speak in court. So I ran into another problem, right? Right. So I found. So I kept asking questions, and I said, "Are you allowed to represent yourself?" Well, yes, you can. Okay. Well, how about if Vinny is charged as a co-conspirator? Oh, that's great. Okay, then Vinny gets to do it, right? right? And then she could allow him to use him you know, to use Vinny to represent her, even. Right. That may be a slight stretch, but since he's you know defending himself and defending her. Uh, he gets to stand up in court. Right. No, I love that. And, you know, whenever I ask someone, you know, uh, whenever I show surprise that the fact that a comedy is shown in law schools, it now does make more sense to me that, um, you know, something like The Verdict or, you know, A Few Good Men aren't shown because, you know, David Mamet and Aaron Sorkin aren't as interested in, you know, the obstacle being um, ignorance about criminal procedure and how trials work. They're much more interested in, you know, some sort of melodramatic or, or, or just, I should say, dramatic conclusion. Um, you decided that what is actually happening in a courtroom and what he can and cannot do was going to be your um, obstacle for your hero to overcome. That makes a lot of sense yeah. why – yeah, your your movie continues to be taught in school. I love that. What's your favorite courtroom drama of all time? Do you have one? I have two on my top ten movie list. Yeah, let's hear them. And, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird and mm. Witness for the Prosecution. Oh, both so amazing. Yeah. How many of your top ten are in black and white like those two? Oh, that's a good question. I have to go look at the top ten. Yeah. But uh, probably half of them, Sunset Boulevard, uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Did I read that Mar the studio wanted you to cut Marissa Tomei's character out of the whole movie? Yes. <laughs> How is that possible? And she ended up winning the Oscar for it. Yes. That was uh, in the first creative meeting, which I met with Roger Birnbaum and Riley Ellis. And Roger opens the meeting with uh, good work. Very, very funny. Very funny. Good work. Do you think you could cut the character of Lisa out of the movie? That's how he opened the meeting. That's insane. And uh, I said to him, and I laughed, and I made a reference, which is now probably a little too dated. I said, that's like saying, I like this movie, Easy Rider, but can you cut that lawyer character out? But the lawyer was, you know, Jack, Jack Nicholson. Nicholson. He was the best thing in the movie, right? right? And uh, it made his career, you know. And then he said, well, she's, she impacts the case more than Vinny. 
that she has a lot of lines and hmm. stuff in there when she talks about the tires and everything. Right. That the G6 um, you know, the they want to yeah. give that to Vinny. Right. And I said, I said, you realize, you know, Vinny, you know, any lawyer goes up when they ask questions, they have to know what the answers are. So Vinny has to know, know all that information. Right. And Vinny has to see that. And by allowing her, you know, and she's very upset at him, um, by having her go up and putting her on the stand, it's actually a very loving thing to do because she wants to help him. And he kind of cut her down. And now he gets her on the stand. She's pissed off at him. And now she realizes that she did help him. And he's allowing her to help him mm-hmm. and allowing her to take the credit on the stand. So it's a very sweet thing, I think. So I explain that. And rather than cut her out, I, if anything, uh, put her in deeper. So they couldn't cut her out. That's smart. I just made it work even more. And it's, I mean, it really does feel like a love story in many ways. Yeah, yeah. And the sequel is very much like that, too. And what's, what's, okay. I can't tell you the whole sequel, but yeah. I can tell you in the first act in the play, uh, when uh, we finally get, um, when the charges are read and the evidence is presented, uh, she was on a plane en route from Newark, New Jersey to Paris, France. They found what they believed to be was a bomb on the plane, made an emergency landing in Gatwick. Passengers were deplaned and sequestered. A bomb squad came on and uh, processed the bomb, and they found a bomb on the plane. They also found, and and they tested for fingerprints, and her fingerprints are all over it. Hmm. They found a digital transmitter that would trigger the digital receiver, which in then turn would uh, detonate the bomb. And the digital transmitter was found in her purse with her fingerprints. They have another witness who interrogated her briefly and says she admitted to planning the bomb, on the plane and planning bombs on other planes and being a member of a terrorist group. Then more evidence comes in. There was a flight attendant overheard her on the phone and uh, wrote down her side of the conversation because it seemed very suspicious. And she's talking about your first event. Whoever she's talking to, she is talking about the first event on the World Trade Center, what bang for the buck. People never forget that. Uh, that's exactly what I want to do. I was going to do it myself. I'm going to let experts do it. Al-Qaeda. <laughs> uh, and then lastly, someone comes in and uh, they have a videotape of Vinny going into Scotland Yard and asking the desk clerk what she was arrested for, and they won't tell him. But he says, was it for something she did in the bathroom? Right. So apparently he's w- aware of the bomb, and now he's a co-conspirator. And he's charged with her. That's and great. that's how we get him up and talking. That's so. smart. All right. So we, we've kept you for a while here. Um, I asked you if there was a scene from someone else's work, not written by you, that you were a fan of and interested in talking about from a craft perspective. You picked a scene from North by Northwest by Hitchcock. Yes. Um, yeah. So not a lot of setup is needed for this. Um, basically, Cary Grant is a fugitive hiding out on a train and he sits down in a cafe car across from Eva Marie Saint. And this is where they meet. So let's just play the clip and then we'll briefly discuss it before we let you go. He is basically on the run and running from police for a murder he did not commit. I know I look vaguely familiar. Yes. You feel you've seen me somewhere before. Mm-hmm. 
funny how I have that effect on people. It's something about my face. It's a nice face. You think so? I wouldn't say it if I didn't. Oh, you're that type. What type? Honest. Not really. Good, because all these women frighten me. Why? I don't know. Somehow they seem to put me at a disadvantage. Because you're not honest with them? Exactly. Like that business about the seven parking tickets? What I mean is, the moment I meet an attractive woman, I have to start pretending I've no desire to make love to her. What makes you think you have to conceal it? She might find the idea objectionable. Then again, she might not. Think how lucky I am to have been seated here. Well, luck had nothing to do with it. Fate? I tipped the steward five dollars to seat you here if you should come in. Is that a proposition? I never discuss love on an empty stomach. You've already eaten. But you haven't. Don't you think it's time we were introduced? I'm Eve Kendall. I'm 26 and unmarried. Now you know everything. Tell me, what do you do besides lure men to their doom on the 20th Century Limited? I'm an industrial designer. Jack Phillips, Western Sales Manager for Kingby Electronics. No, you're not. You're Roger Thornhill of Madison Avenue, and you're wanted for murder on every front page in America. And don't be so modest. Oops. Oh, don't worry. I won't say a word. How come? I told you. It's a nice face. Is that the only reason? It's going to be a long night. True. And I don't particularly like the book I've started. Ah. You know what I mean? Ah, let me think. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. That's my trademark, rot. Roger O. Thornhill. What does the O stand for? Nothing. It's a great scene. Um, what made you choose that scene? It's just charming and sexy and funny, and it comes uh, about maybe a third of the way into the movie, a little longer, and the movie becomes a different movie yeah. at this point. It becomes a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. What a great character she is. I mean, she's bold. She's aggressive. She's seductive. Um, and she clearly holding her own with him. I mean, that's a very charming pattern. Yes. And she knows he's wanted, and she's going to be his friend for some reason. And so it just, it, it, so much information comes out of that in such an effortless way. Right. In such an entertaining way. Right. There's so, so much I energy love that to it. scene. Yeah. 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 It's but like I, mean, I say, you know, I, I have another screenplay, which I can't tell you about, but it starts out in one genre and then it changes to another. And and then it quickly changes to another, mm-hmm. um, and it becomes a romantic comedy. Um, 
So this movie, whereas, you know, North by Northwest, you know, it's a straight thriller. And they could have played it that way. But when they introduce her, we come to her and the movie just soars to another dimension. Right. And it's a, it is a straight thriller, but it's also got a lot of comedy in it. It's very funny. Yeah. And this scene here, well, you know, as you were saying, it's got a lot of exposition to it. But because there's such a game of one-upsmanship between them and sizing each yeah. other up, it doesn't feel like you're hearing exposition. It feels like you're really, you know, watching a, almost an action scene with all that energy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's very sexy. Yeah, completely. Very sexy. All right, well, you know, we've kept you for a while here. We thank you so much for your time. We'll let you go. Okay, great. Um, all right, thank you again, Dale. This has been great. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Studio, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Hit me with questions or suggestions at aaron.tracy at yale.edu or on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy. Uh, thanks so much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>